We have come to the time of the service when our children will be dismissed to Children's Church. So if you are headed out to that program, you can follow Miss Sherry out to my right and your left. They have some wonderful things planned next door. Here together, we will turn our attention back to 1 Samuel. So you can flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We pick up with the next phase of our narrative. Verse 1 says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh. And they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Elah, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these plagues of the wilderness? Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes were torn and dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken. And he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. 
And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and she gave birth and her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she did not answer nor pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Bow with me. Father God, we thank you for sharing with us through your inspired spirit the events of this moment in Israel's history. God, a moment of sorrow, defeat, death, judgment. But Father, we pray in the midst of all of those that today, God, that you would help us to see a hope. A hope that is shining for each one of us when we turn away from you. Father God, Israel put their trust not in you, but in the implements and the trappings of their religion. Father, help us today, even as we sit in this house, Father, that our attention would not be on it, not on the pulpit, not on the stage, but, Father, fully on you. And, Father, we ask in the next few moments that you would speak to me, speak through me, and speak in spite of me. And, God, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. So we change gears today in our series as we are working through the book of First Samuel. As we've talked about, First Samuel is the story of God establishing an earthly kingship among his people. And the narrative is delivered to us through the lens of different characters as we move through the book. And so we are doing the same. We are taking um, kind of mini-series by mini-series and focusing on these different characters. In our first four weeks, we focused on Samuel and his coming onto the stage. In chapter one, we looked at Hannah, his mother, and her flight in her barrenness. In chapter two, we celebrated in her song, a declaration that God's will would be done even through the darkest of circumstances. In the second half of chapter two, we saw God's word beginning to be proclaimed among his people again, a people that were steeped in sin, even into the very leadership of the temple. As a man of God came, comes in the end of chapter two and declares a word of judgment on Eli, on Eli's sons and on the entire nation of Israel. And then in chapter 3, God raises up Samuel to be his voice among the people. But over the next few weeks, we are going to turn our attention from Samuel as our main character to the ark as our main character. The next few chapters, many theologians call the ark narrative because the ark seems to become the central character in what will happen. It opens with some interesting words, though. Verse 1 opens by saying, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. 
It's interesting, at first it may seem that this phrase is in the wrong chapter. Um, it may seem that this really should have gone back with the chapter that we studied in chapter 3 as it focused in on Samuel and his declaring of the word. In fact, many of your Bibles may have it separated, even though not by chapter, there may be spacing there that would indicate that that's where it goes. But I don't think that that is the appropriate place. We talked about when we studied chapter 3 that there's words and phrases there about the Word of God that kind of work as bookends to chapter 3, making it pretty clear that that was a complete narrative moment. And the phrasing here in the Hebrew actually indicates that it is more of an opening. And so it's probably more apt for us to read that as around the time that the Word of Samuel came to all of Israel. A reminder that even in the dark moments that are about to happen in this chapter, God's word was present. But this shows us that while God's word is now available to his people, they were not yet seeking or abiding it. It's just another reminder to us that it is not God's word in our hands or God's word in our ears, but God's word in our hearts that really makes a difference. So they gather up in battle. Battle was something that was a part, a common part of Israel's life during this season. Remember that after coming out of Egypt, they had been given a command to conquer the promised land, to drive out the pagan nations that were there among the land. And so battle had been something that was an, an ongoing part of their existence. And so once again, they find themselves facing off across the field of battle with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a tribe of people that will become a constant thorn in the flesh um, throughout the rest of Samuel and really beyond. They were a seafaring people, most likely from the Aegean Islands. And when they outgrew those islands, they came to the mainland, so to speak, looking to expand their territory. They first tried to conquer Egypt under Ramesses III, but they found that um, more than they could handle. So they were driven back, and in being driven back, they moved north along the Mediterranean seacoast into the plains just off the promised land of God's people. And there they settled along the coast, establishing major cities and then driving in along the plains all the way to the hill country. Now remember, this is a group of people that had first come on the scenes in the book of Judges, specifically under Deborah as they began to raid into the land of the Israelites, coming from those plains into the hills, raiding and taking back livestock and slaves. Remember that this is the central enemy in the story of Samson. This was the group of people that tricked Samson, that bound him, that gouged out his eyes and chained him to their temple. And in a moment of great repentance for Samson, he turned back God, and he was able to push down the pillars of the temple, bringing it down and killing all of the Philistine lords and 3,000 of their people. Now, this was not ancient history to the Israelites or the Philistines that were standing on that battlefield. This was not yet two decades probably in the past. This was fresh on their minds. And so there's a lot of animosity across this field of battle as they stand ready to take up sword with one another. Now remember, this is not modern battle. This is not something that is done at a distance with bombs and long bullets. This was something that was done hand to hand. 
As they line up across each other, they are not lining up miles apart. They are lining up feet apart, face to face, staging up at the two closest cities, Aphek and Ebenezer. Ebenezer is the closest city outside of the country of Ephraim, the, 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 the tribe of Ephraim, right outside of the hills. And Aphek is the last city in the plains. And so they mounted up their armies at these two cities and came out to face off against one another. I can see Israel that morning gloating. Victory was something that they had become accustomed to. It seemed to them when things were going well with them that battles always went well with them. And so they take up their sword in their pride and they march out into the battlefield. But over the course of the day as the sun peaks and begins to fall, it seems like the line is breaking in more and more places. And they are having to call up more and more reinforcements. And when the sun sets, calling an end to that day's battle, and they begin to count the dead and wounded, they realize that they have had a terrible defeat. And so they ask a question. They ask a really good question. Why has the Lord defeated us here today before the Philistines? It's a good question. Honestly, when we in our lives find that we are facing times of difficulty and defeat, we should also ask the hard whys. Is this something that's happening to me because of a poor choice that I made? Is this something that is happening to me because of sin in my life and God is trying to get my attention? Is this something happening to me because God is trying to prepare in me characteristics for something that is coming down the road? Or is this just the nature of a broken and sin-marred world? We need to be willing to ask those hard questions. Israel was willing to ask the hard question, but they were not willing to seek a hard answer. And so though they had the courage to ask the question, they did not have the courage to seek the answer. They did not have the courage to look at their own sin, and so they came up with the wrong answer. They didn't take very long. They didn't seek the prophet of God that had risen up. They did not pray about their own sin or the sin that was literally at the doors of their temple that they all knew was there. They quickly and simply decided to bring up the ark. Remember that the ark of God is a box. It's a wooden box that God gave them instructions for as they exited Egypt. It's a four by two and a half by two and a half foot box made out of acacia wood, covered in gold. The top is also made out of wood and covered in gold. And on the top are two angels with their wings stretched out towards one another making up the mercy seat, these cherubim, these angels. And inside of the ark was placed the tablets that God literally wrote on himself when giving the law to Moses, a jar of the manna that was provided for them, Aaron's staff that budded as provision, all in this box. And the box became the ultimate symbol of God's presence with his people. When they needed to ask a question, they would come before the ark, the mercy seat of God. The ark was shown great reverence, kept in the innermost part of the tabernacle, treated specifically, specially, 
carried in specific ways by poles that were inserted at its base. It had gone before them as they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. It had gone before them as they marched around Jericho and watched the walls fall. Again and again, it had been there in battle. They had seen it so many times that they stopped seeing the God that it symbolized and began to see only the ark. And so they call for this magic box. And here it comes, a symbol of God's presence led forth by Hophni and Phinehas, the two most evil pastors that had ever existed in Israel's history. Their sin known and rampant among the people, leading the ark. It should have said something to them in that moment, but it didn't. Upon seeing the ark, a great cheer goes up among the nation of Israel. This empty symbol has stirred up a false confidence. But the problem with using hollow symbols to manipulate emotions is that the world is just as good as that as we are. And so ultimately, this symbol also concentrates the valor of the Philistines. You see, they asked the right question, but they came to the horribly wrong answer. They could have done some honest soul-searching. They could have asked Samuel. They could have looked at that sin of the two men that were leading out the ark, but instead they reached out for a talisman. They say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh that it may come among us that it may save us from the power of our enemies. They put their faith in the expression and not in the substance. Ralph Dell Davis calls this rabbit foot theology. I was thinking about that this week, and I wondered for a moment if that is a phrase that is actually maybe past its time and may not have relevance to everybody. So if you're not familiar... It used to be common to carry a lucky rabbit's foot. I never really understood that, right? I mean, it obviously wasn't lucky for the rabbit. He had four, and look what happened to him. <laughs> but it was a common thing to carry this rabbit's foot. And I was researching that this week. Yes, it was chickens last week and rabbit's feet this week. <laughs> and I found out maybe part of the problem. You see, we weren't doing the rabbit's foot right. As I looked into it, there's actually very specific parameters around the rabbit's foot, okay? It can't just be any foot. It's got to be his back left foot, okay? And it can't just be any rabbit. It's got to be a white rabbit. And it can't just be any death. The rabbit has to be killed in a cemetery. And it can't just be any person. The foot's only lucky for the person that killed the rabbit in the cemetery and took his back left foot. Suddenly it seems pretty ridiculous, but maybe no less ridiculous than thinking that a wooden box would bring victory on a battlefield of thousands. Del Ralph Davis goes on after he calls it rabbit foot theology and he says it this, he says, what happens is our concern is not to seek God, but to control him, not to submit to God, but to use him. 
So we prefer religious magic rather than spiritual holiness. We are interested in success and not repentance. It's a problem for Israel. But we should not look back with too much condemnation because I believe it is still probably a problem for us today. You think about our world at large. Think about the businessman who sees little value in Christianity until he is told that he should attend church because it could save his business. The sick person who is told that they should keep a crucifix beside their bed because Jesus has the power to heal. A student facing exams who turns in prayer to God because he might have the power to help them pass the test. Or a politician who suddenly donates to a local Christian charity when a large enough number of his voters declare that they are Christians. It's been the case for all of time. Even the German army, under Adolf Hitler, the Nazi army, they were doing some of the most evil things that mankind has known, had on their belt buckles, grot mit uns. God is with us. A hollow talisman. But the temptation is not just for the world. It is inside of our own church walls as well. This hollow religious talisman is what is at the heart of the prosperity gospel movement. A gospel movement that is tearing up Africa, but that has its roots here in America and all around the world. A religion that says, if you have enough faith, God will make you well. If you give enough money, God will make you rich. The problem with the prosperity gospel, it is a hollow talisman. It is an effort not to become holy before God, but to use him as a means to our own selfish ends. He becomes our hollow box. We think that we can handcuff God to our actions. If I am faithful enough, if I give enough, then he will have to. But I think it goes even deeper than that. What about the church member who never gives, never serves, only shows up on Easter and Christmas, and yet they throw a fit if we suggest that we remove their name from church membership? Church membership has become an interesting hollow talisman in the past generations. It's common now, and it is present in our church, that we have, churches have thousands of members and only a few hundred in attendance. But you know that is recent. For most of church history, it was much more common for the number in attendance to be much greater than the number of members because they protected that. They did not offer that out as a hollow talisman. And so in the last few generations, that has flipped. And we have so many that have their membership, believing that it is the empty box that will draw them to victory, that will guarantee their prosperity in this life and the next. It is a rabbit's foot. And too many churches are complicit in not having the guts to tell people that this is not your faith. And giving lip service 
to membership perpetuates the problem. The truth is that if we are going to seek God's mighty help in our times of battle, we should seek to honor him. We should seek to obey the rebukes, the corrections, and the instructions that he gives to us in Scripture. We should seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then all other things, if they are truly important, will be given to us then. I love that verse. When we seek first, all these other things will be given to us. But the irony in that verse is the true Christian knows that once we have obtained Christ, we have everything. And too often we let that go in exchange for lower worldly things. We seek first the blessings apart from God and find that in that all has been taken. The cost of getting it wrong is just too high. It was too high for Israel. Here they are, they think that they have laid the playing field the way that they want it. They have called up all the big guns. They have the ark out before them. They line up in battle. They march out into the battlefield and they are routed. The blood begins to flow ankle deep on the battlefield. They look around in horror as the enemy surround the ark, put to the sword Hophni and Phinehas, their high priest, and take the ark of God back behind the enemy battle lines. And as they stand, jaws dropped. They are cut down. Some 30,000 men. And one lone Benjamite tears his clothes in sorrow, puts ash on his head, and runs 22 miles back to Shiloh to give the news. Upon getting there, there Eli sits. God's prophet to his people in this moment, but a prophet with a light that is quickly fading. A man that had not the courage to call out the sin of his sons. A man who would not speak the word of God, and so the word of God had to be spoken to him in judgment, in condemnation. He sits by the doorways, blind physically because of his age, but blind spiritually because of his sin. He's fat and overweight because he has gorged himself on what has been stolen from God's people by his sons. And he waits, not worried about God's glory, not worried about Israel's victory, not worried about his sons, but worried about the box. His only worry is for the ark. And he hears that Israel has been defeated. He hears of the massive bloodshed. He watches stoic faced as they tell him his sons are dead. But at the moment that he hears of the symbol's loss, his shock is so great that he falls over backwards dead. And so that we see God's judgment poured out on Israel. We see God's judgment poured out on Eli. We see God's judgment poured out on Eli's sons. 
just as it had been predicted by the man of God in chapter 2, just as it had been proclaimed by Samuel in chapter 3. You see, Israel did not think that God would allow judgment to come on them because the ark was there. The symbol was there, therefore God had to be bound to them. But they had two faulty assumptions that led them to that belief. First, they assumed that God cared more about what the world thought of him than he cared about what his people did to honor him. By bringing the ark, Israel believed that they had bound God to help them through the shackles of his own honor. If we lose, it's egg on his face. And so they called him to task. Parents, you have probably been put to this ploy as well if you have children. How many times have you been standing in the hallway after church talking to your friend and uprun your children? And right there in front of everyone, they ask, Mom, can Johnny come over and play today? Drives you crazy, doesn't it? Because what have they done? They have put your honor on the line. If mom says no, she's the one that looks bad. And so we've bound her to having to obey our whims. They believe they had shackled God. Surely he will not bring judgment if we bring him out in front of the Philistines. But God did not care about what the world thought about him. His character is unchanging, and therefore it is unaffected by the whims of mere sinners. But God does care about his people, and God does care about their holiness. I can hear the boasting of the Philistines, can't you? As they drag the ark back into their camp, as they celebrate, as they hear the weeping and mourning on the battlefield, they're boasting Israel has been decimated, and in Israel's defeat, Yahweh has been defeated. He wasn't able to give Israel victory, and so Yahweh is the loser. But for those of us that have been reading the full narrative up to this point, that are privy to the insight of the backstory, we see clearly the plot twist. That on the day that Yahweh seems to be dishonored is actually the day that he is beginning to protect his honor and to restore it among his people. He may be despised for a time among the Philistines, but he will no longer be despised at his own temple in Shiloh. It is only a God of ultimate love that will face his own dishonor to redeem his people. A God that's willing to put off his magnitude, that is willing to lower himself, to submit to hardships so that he might redeem his people. But Israel misunderstood that. The second thing is that they assumed that God could not work out his sovereign plan unless he was victorious. That God could not work out his sovereign plan if the victory was lost. They thought God's hands were tied to the victory of his people. That if they failed, then God's plan would surely have to fail. Because how could God's plan include anything but their prosperity? 
Now, we have to be careful not to miss how God is working here. This is a dark and desperate chapter. We can get lost in the bloodiness of the battle, in the tragedy of the ark being captured, in the slaughter of God's reputation, and miss the fact. God is quietly, clearly fulfilling the words that he had spoken through words of judgment on Eli, words of judgment on Eli's sons, and words of judgment on Israel. A judgment that would shame his honor among the Philistines. A judgment that would hurt his people. But a judgment that would ultimately show his grace. Israel thought that bringing the ark was the key to their victory. But God in his divine sovereign power uses it instead as the key to carrying out his, with our sins, with our failures, and even in the face of our own punishment, God shows his grace. Through the fulfillment of his word, he acts in judgment on Eli and on Eli's sons. But even in that act, his grace is apparent. For in this judgment, he is removing the false shepherds who have been leading his people astray. And so he shows his mercy, even in his judgment. To the final scene of this chapter, surely in the flow of this narrative, this narrative writer knows enough that we have taken on too much so far in this chapter. There has been too much death, too much defeat. We need a light here at the end of the chapter. But he relents not. And the chapter closes with what is maybe the most desperate and sorrowful of anything in the chapter. In the final scene, we have again sadness. We have again death. This poor mother to be great with child, the wife of an adulterous and despicable husband, but she is so overcome by the loss of the ark, so overcome by the death that is surrounding her nation, surrounding her family, that she goes into a premature labor. And in her sorrow and in her pain, she becomes completely despondent. In the birth chamber, there is the cry of a lone little boy, and yet the mother is not moved. She refuses to look at the child. The nurses are doing their best to save her life, to give her comfort and she just stares blankly off into the distance. And as her lifeblood is leaving her, in one final word of hopeless despair, she names her child. And she names him Ichabod. For the glory of God had departed. In her sorrow, she gives the name to her son that will be with him for his entire life. A name that declares that God has left his people. 
because the ark had been captured. Ichabod. But she was only partially right. The glory of God had departed from Israel. But I like the way that E.L. Ellington says it in his commentary. She was wrong. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark of God had been captured because the glory of God had already departed. God's glory had departed his people when his people departed from their obedience. In their sin and their blatant flipping of God's commands, he had pulled back. We should be reminded that there are times when God does depart from his people. There are times when he must depart from us so that we might seek him more rightly. It's a sober reminder that there are churches in our world that are filled with people. Churches that are filled with instruments and lighting and singing. They have the brightest screens. They have the best branding. And yet above it all could be written Ichabod. Because God does not dwell in houses made by men. He is not bound to our religious practices and he can withhold his spirit as he wills for his glory and for our good. And so we are left at the end of this chapter with heartbreak. We are left with no hope, it seems. It's a heartbreaking word, Ichabod. It stirs the desperate question inside of us. Once God's glory has departed from a nation, once God's glory has departed from a church, once God's glory has departed from an individual, is there any hope? We know that we are desperate sinners. We know that we do not honor God as we should. We are failures who in every effort to constantly do right only seem to do more wrong. We build churches to honor him and yet we argue over the carpet color. We build stages to worship him and yet we grumble because the music style does not fit our liking. We build pulpits to proclaim his word and then complain that the sermon is too long. We buy Bibles because we like the way the covers look and never open them once we get them home. We pray in public but never speak to God in private. In short, we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. And what is God to do in the face of such sin, in the face of such rebellion, our sins, they cry out for judgment. Our sins cry out, Ichabod, the glory of God should depart. And yet God cries back, Emmanuel. Jesus has come to be among his people, not separated, 
a God that would humble himself, that would be despised among men, so that his sinful, lost people could be redeemed. We should lament that God's glory has to depart from his people, that it has to be rightly removed because of our sin. We should bow our heads in despair, but then we should look up from our despair. And we should see Jesus as our Savior who died on a cross to put away our sins, to put away our shame, who rose again that we could have a new life, a new beginning, forgiveness in full. He was called Emmanuel because in him God restored his presence among his people. Jesus flipped the script. As justice cried Ichabod, so God answered Emmanuel. And all that we must do, brothers and sisters, is to turn back to him. No matter how deep in your sin, no matter how far along your judgment, no matter how deep Ichabod is in your life, be comforted by the words of Zechariah. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. It is that simple. No matter how deep into Ichabod you are, Emmanuel is never more than a prayer away. He is always there pursuing you, waiting for you to turn back to him. This morning as we come to the time of response, that is the response, to turn from Ichabod to Emmanuel. Jesus is the only hope that we have in this world, and you need to respond to him today. You can come to the altars and kneel and pray. If you have business, you need to individually do with God. If you need to talk about membership, baptism, or salvation, you can come and talk to me. I will be here. But as always, you can do business with God right where you are. It doesn't matter about the stained glass. It doesn't matter about the lights or the screens. What matters is, is the Holy Spirit present with you right now. And if he is, you can do communion with him in your seat and respond in any way that you need to. Let's stand together as we respond to that spirit's leading.